0: It is September fourth, twenty nineteen. The U.S. Open is in the quarterfinals. We're halfway through. Roger is out. Serena is very much in. Uh, I think Rafa Nadal is pretty, you know, is about the ninety-five percent favorite to win the men's title. Serena is looking kind of unstoppable, but uh, Bianca Andreescu is looming in the other half. And uh, this is the tennis tragic. Uh, I'm David, coming to you. Uh, 8 a.m. Austin time, and uh, with me as always are Matt Rochford and Alex Dawson from Sydney, Australia. How are you guys doing?
1: Good, good. I'm in bed again. Bed is my <laughs> office to do these. <laughs> podcasts, <laughs> it's gonna be well. a theme,
2: isn't it? Do you,
1: but I, I would have done it from the lounge room, but the internet's not good, not good enough out in the lounge room. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm not under the covers this time. Though. Do, do you f-
0: do you feel like your your bed energy is? You know is maximized like are you like fired up oh yeah like, yeah there i am
1: far from asleep this um okay this us open's been wild
0: good well, what's uh, so what's keeping you up
1: uh, this this podcast appointment that we had <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it that's it you just can't get it out of your mind
2: how are you doing al <laughs> doing good doing good uh, <laughs> Um, just trying to oh, absorb as much tennis as I can there has been so much. I've been watching a lot of tennis at work because it bleeds into kind of half the workday over here at the moment. So it's been, it's been pretty good, actually. But, yeah, doing good, doing good. Yeah, I managed to um, – I hope my colleagues aren't listening
1: to this, but I managed to watch some tennis um, during – in in a classroom when the kids were doing dance class today. <laughs> i saw some of them um, the fourth set between dimitrov and, and Federa.
2: um yeah i um, saw probably like three of the five sets of that scattered like the first maybe and the f- bit of the third and the fifth i think yeah what a match mm.
1: yeah um it's, people were saying that roger's kind of faded towards the end is that your impression you guys
0: it sounds, I mean, he was, uh, he was injured. I don't think anybody knows exactly what was going on. So I was. it was nighttime here, and I didn't get to watch it all yesterday. Um, was just super distracted with work, and then I had a friend's birthday party, and I went to the birthday party, and uh, we were having dinner, and I, I get the phone out to check the scores, and I'm like, oh, shit. Like Roger, is, he's up a set. Down a break in the fourth, and I tell my friend, my friends, uh, my friends whose birthday it was. One of them was at the French Open with me. Like they're they're sports savvy, they're into it, um, and uh, and we're like, okay, well, we got to go to a bar and watch watch the fifth set. Um, so so yeah, so we hopped down the road and uh, actually found a bar with tennis on, which really should be the standard for most bars. Um, nobody else was paying any attention, but we, we settled in right in time for the start of the fifth set and promptly saw Federer come back from like an eight minute, uh, bathroom break and, uh, then drop the first four games. And we were all very sad, Mm. um, because we, uh, you know, we're fed fans. I just, I don't know what it is. You know, we were, we were kind of trying to dig into that. Like, what is it about Roger that makes us so we feel so emotionally tied to him. I mean, he really, he looked like, he just looked like a miserable old person there. And my friend whose birthday it was, Kristen, she was just like, you know, how old is Roger? because um, Kristen just turned 38, and I think Roger's 37. So it was really, for those of us on the other side of 37, it was, you know, a little bit of a reminder of our, of our mortality. I think that's, that's kind of the Roger Federer experience right now. But so that bathroom break, just like the, the knowledge that death is inevitable.
2: That was an off-court um, medical timeout, right?
0: Uh, I think. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was it it wasn't an on-court bathroom break, <laughs> which would be funny if they. <laughs> it was a medical timeout. You're right. I'm I'm misrepresenting things.
2: Afterwards, he you said it was like a back thing. He didn't really go too much into it, but I think in the press conference he was kind of said he said it was um, a back thing, but he didn't want to go into it because he was like, "Look, this is a Dmitrov moment. It's not my back moment. It's fine. I'm fine. I lost. That's it. Move on." Like he kind of had that yeah. attitude. Yeah,
1: yeah. He said back in Nick, and he said, "Yeah, he was he was well enough to play. He tried his best. Sure, he might have been affected a bit, but yeah, he's he always says like." That right the right kind of thing when he's got an mm. injury. He doesn't blame it on the injury.
0: Yeah, I mean that's the that's the graceful thing to do, right? To like give credit to your opponent and not try to take anything away from them. But I feel like I've I, I know I have friends who don't like Roger who uh, you know accuse him of like false modesty or you know, just or like or being arrogant, right? Like there are times, like I remember when Kevin Anderson beat him at Wimbledon last year and he was just like, you know. He was like, my game was off. Like, the, the match was there for me to win, and I just fucked it up. And, you know, but that's the thing. Roger Federer, if he's healthy and, like, and young, eternally young, then he beats everybody, you know? But those two things are no longer given. So yeah. You know, that's he'll true. either get hurt or he will decay into an old man.
2: He was shanking a lot of balls, like, so many forehands and backhands.
0: Oh, it was really awful. That fifth set was awful. Hmm. But how good is it for yeah. Dimitrov, though? Mm. He's, um, he's 28 right, let's himself. Let's not take he's... away credit from Grigor.
2: I'm so happy that Dimitrov won, to be honest. I've got to say that. I'm all on Dimitrov's side on this one. <laughs> Just, I'm going to put that one out there. I'm so happy that he's come back. He was third in the world like, a year and a half ago. He dropped to 78th. He's been having yeah, a I mean... shitty, shitty season. And he, you know, every, every tournament, people season then come up in the draw and they're like, okay, this could be the one that Dimitrov starts to turn it around and every tournament he's out round one or round two. And this time I think people have stopped waiting for that and he's just – he got through a couple of rounds and then he had a walkover and everyone started to be like, oh, maybe, let's, maybe we should watch Dimitrov and then he did this and it's like, oh, shit, maybe Dimitrov's back. So I'm pretty happy about that.
0: Yeah, I guess I guess we'll see with the Medvedev match because from what I don't know if you guys caught any of that, I missed it completely. But uh, I heard the tennis podcast recap it, and it sounds like Medvedev was like was kind of gimpy himself, and sort of just managed his way through the match and like turned it on when he needed to. So they they both have two days off before the semi on Friday. But, he was injured too. Um, he had a leg
1: injury apparently, um, and and he said that he said that he needed to. Um, Manages, manage himself a bit, like uh, play. He, he, he called it playing ugly. Like he needed to not play the fluid game that he would normally play and instead be more calculating, um, go for some winners he would normally go for, go for some drop shots that he wouldn't normally do, that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, he got a trainer out at one point and got his calf, like his quad kind of area, his quad taped up really heavily. And then he played a couple games and he got the trainer back out and just got him to cut it back off and he's like, No, nah, this isn't working, this isn't helping, this is just like hindering me. Took a bunch of painkillers and then just yeah, just adapted his game and played ugly, as you say. And I think Varinka didn't really know how to deal with it because it was just not this is just not what he's been playing. You know, he's just it was just a whole new Medvedev and mm. it worked. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what Medvedev said. He said, I tried to not give him any rhythm. Um, So he made the best of the situation. Mm. Smart player. Um, What's his coach's name? Um, Who's the ex-player? Gil Savaro. Gil Savaro. Yeah, um, he said that he calls Medvedev a genius.
0: Oh, yeah, right. Wow. That's no small praise. Mm. I mean, when you hear Medvedev speak, you get a pretty clear impression that he's a very bright kid. But I remember, you know, he lost that final in Canada to Rafa where he just got drubbed. And I remember the, commenta- the commentators kind of saying like, he really needs to adapt and he's failing to do that. And that's kind of the difference between the top three guys and everybody else, like their ability to like in, in match, you know, adapt their tactics to what's actually happening uh, no matter what the expectation was. And it was like Medvedev was just, he was just trying to return Rafa's serve from 10 feet behind the baseline first and second serve, like not really mixing it up in any noticeable way. But then when he played Novak in the semis in Cincinnati, all of a sudden you could see that thinking, you know, the the thinking bulb go on over his head. Like at some point in that match, you know, he started, he was like totally running on fumes and he started going for super huge second serves. Like he mm. basically was just serving first serves as second serves. Yeah. And he kind of, he kind of cheesed his way through that match. Like that's, that strategy. It, it almost seems like, like, it's like, you're not supposed to do that. You know, it's too risky. You know, if you start throwing in doubles, you're just going to hand, a game to your opponent. But he felt like if I just throw in these, you know, these soft, you know, 100 mile per hour second serves, Novak's going to win every point. And so he adapted his strategy and found a way to win this match improbably against Novak, who was very much in form. And uh, here he is in the US Open semis with yeah, no I've, Novak in sight.
2: I've got him for the win. He's my pick. Yeah, wow. Even over Rafa? Yeah. I reckon this time he's going to come and he's going to problem solve. It. Problem solve Rafa in the final and win it.
1: <laughs> that would be such a great story. because the other thing and we've been talking about his game, but the other thing is his is his relationship with the That's um, you know the, he's he's been copying a lot of booze um, and you know, it seems like people love to hate him, but he's he seems to thrive on that energy. and uh, I've noticed a bit of a change now now he's now he's been acknowledging the crowd saying, Hey, keep doing me. I like it. Um, you give me energy, and I'm just going to be my own person. And um, in that quarterfinal, I feel like at the end, the crowd were like kind of on his side.
2: Yeah, I think he's won them over. I think in a few things he's done. You know, he's been. He was pretty good after in that um, post-match interview after Varenka and also in one of the press conferences recently. Might have been after that one. He he said, "Look, I, you know, I did some stupid things in that in that first match where all the booing started." He's like, "I'm trying to be better at that." But uh, off the court, did he I think the I'm. Towel? Uh, yeah, ball off ball the ball. court. That's right. He snatched the towel off a of ball boy, and then the crowd started booing him. And then it started from that. So, you know, it was it wasn't a good thing for him to do that. But uh, the whole crowd booing you f- for that made him do the finger gesture after that. And then it was just reacting to each other from there. So, but, um, but I think now he's, you he, know, he's expressed that he's like, yeah, the I finger feel...
0: was so funny. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> <laughs> the
1: finger gave the finger. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah, but that was fucking classic, man. I, I, I have been replaying that moment for my friends when I try to describe how, how joyful the Medvedev Feliciano Lopez match was to me. Such a good <laughs> like, match. He like, he, he extends, yeah. And it just, it totally, we were texting during that and it just flipped, like energy wise, it, it like engaged on another level. Like as soon as Medvedev started playing against the crowd, like he, he makes a middle finger gesture with his hand and he puts it up against the side of his head, like as if to hide it, I guess, from the, from the umpire. And I think that was directed towards the crowd. So he yeah. just, at that moment, he embraced it. And then Feliciano, to his credit, is just such a, he's such a game competitor. He's like, I want to beat the crap out of this kid right now. So they they went toe-to-toe for that match. And yeah, it was really high-level... High-level stuff. The uh, the point that Medvedev won to secure the third set tiebreak was incredibly memorable uh, to me. He was, like, falling backwards out of bounds, and Fe- Feliciano hits this amazing drop shot, and you don't think there's any chance that Medvedev's going to get to it. And he somehow, like, changes direction, dashes towards the net like a gazelle, and, like, dinks this little half-lob over Feliciano's head that probably Feliciano should have had. He thought he had maybe won the point already, and then wins the set, and the crowd just... Loses it because they are not on Medvedev's side. No. So uh, yeah, just had this energy that is missing a lot in tennis, and I think like helps bring you know non tennis fans into the fold. Right? It's like it's like oh these, these guys care, and it's like it's edgy now. Like it's personal. It's not it's not <laughs> just like a you know two professionals going about their business. Like they yeah, awesome. they want to kill each other, in it.
1: and it's like the theater. Like the, <laughs> what I love about it is I think David, you were talking about it being like a wrestling match. You know where you have the the wrestling yep. villain playing up to the crowd, and um, that's what's great about um, someone like Mevdev, who can bring that theatricality and that involving the audience. And it's not just a game of sports where the um, the players super focused on their own performance, but they also care about the energy, about the crowd, and um, their own personality shines through. And everyone, you know, it just makes the game so much more enjoyable.
0: Yeah, and I think this is like it's really interesting like how Medvedev has um, has embraced it. I mean, Medvedev has exhibited some kind of shitty behavior in the past and you know, snatching a towel away from a ball kid isn't exactly a way to ingratiate your, yourself to to strangers, but he he embraces that role. Like at some point he's just like, "All right, give it to me." And his post-match celebration, I think was like a minor crossover sports news story right because he just he's like got his arms extended and he's like bringing (laughs) the booze down and he's like basically taunting the crowd in the post-match interview i mean you never see that i reckon
1: the crowd loved booing him at that point they were like okay that's our cue to keep booing you that's what this is the relationship we set up
0: absolutely i think you know i've learned this from watching sports my entire life like how villains are villains are necessary, like for you to really care. Like you have to want somebody to lose. It's not just about wanting somebody to win or just wanting to see like a sport played beautifully at the highest level. Like you, like it, it, things change when it starts to become personal and edgy like that. And maybe with Medvedev, maybe it becomes like too cartoonish or too expected, or possibly the crowd falls in love with him because he's such a ham. But, um, Alex, I know this is, like, a big topic for you. Like, Novak Djokovic retired in the fourth round of his match and, um, I'm sorry, in the fourth round uh, of the tournament. Uh, was it, it wasn't the fourth set. It was the third set, and he was down, um, and he was clearly injured. He's been fighting an injury. And, like, the crowd starts laying into him. And it doesn't really feel fair, given that he's this great champion and has accomplished so much. But it's like... There's just this sadness about Novak. He doesn't embrace the the villain role, you know? Like he doesn't want that. He wants to be loved. And I think that's that's sort of the sadness of of Novak. There's there's this kind of tragic element to uh to Novak's incredible career, you know? Like he just can't he can't get the love.
2: He's a good guy, though as it's well. It's a little bit different though because, you know, the the booing from Medvedev came from an incident that happened. Whereas Djokovic, he's universally well not universally, but in general, not liked as much as the other big three. And then so for them to for him to have to retire from a match in the US Open where he's on track to try and catch the Grand Slam record that Roger currently holds, that's already painful enough. Like the the fact that he has to retire and and give up that for this round. And then for a whole crowd to boo someone, the world number one, as they're walking off, just thinking about how they've just had to pull out of this match and then hopefully they're going to repair in time and hopefully their body's okay. For the crowd to boo someone in that moment, I thought it was so disgraceful. I thought it was really, really, really bad.
0: Yeah, I think I think he, re- I mean, so last night when Federer lost, I think the commentators uh, were, were suggesting, uh, they, he's never retired from a match in his career or something like that. Like, Ed, like Federer has this like standard, like he's going to play until the bitter end no matter what. And I, I think there, I didn't see the Novak match where he, he had to retire, but I, I get the impression that maybe the crowd was just upset that he didn't finish. But then again, like he has an injury. He's clearly yeah. not winning the match. I the think match that's a different no situation. The on its own merits. He like why shouldn't he retire in that moment? Like he knew he was defeated. Like he does He shouldn't risk his personal health. But for some reason, there that's it's like one of these unspoken rules. You know, like you're supposed to get out there and tough it out. And...
1: But in reality, plenty of players retire from matches due to injury. And in this case, um, we knew that Novak had, had the injury. Um, but like we knew Novak had, had the injury um, earlier on in the tournament. And he tried to play through those first two sets, which he would lost. And I think he, you know, his performance was down. That's why he he did lose those first two sets. And you know, at a certain point, you, yeah, you you do have to retire for your own uh, well being. It was the right decision for Novak, obviously, but.
2: Um, yeah, I understand he, the I understand the point of people saying you know it's. It was in the third set. He was down a break. There was only a few more games left and he could have let Varenka have have the match as a win. But I think, uh, I think he's played through shoulder and elbow injuries before and it made it worse and it made it longer to recover. Mm. And I think that was in the back of his head. He's like, well, I don't want to – I'm still – I'm not – this isn't the end of my career. I'm still at my peak and I'm trying to get healthy. I'm not going to – you know, that's maybe it's the etiquette to go for a few more games, but 30, 40 more minutes of tennis could be. Maybe that a was really already a few difference. more games. Maybe that was yeah, a few exactly. more games. Yeah, exactly. That's like, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Maybe he'd been um, struggling. Maybe he knew that he wasn't going to win that match for quite a few games beforehand and he kept struggling and struggling. And yeah, you just don't know. Like, I know mm. I'd love to take the court at the moment to play a social match, but I definitely can't because of my knee. Mm. And uh, mm. it's just not happening for me.
2: I mean, yeah, you what, got too what, uh, much to play uh,
0: for down the road, Matt. <laughs> you got yeah, yeah. no, to heal. Yeah, I do. I Go like Andy Brown's Murray and go on the Pay. Challenger circuit. And get back to health.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> 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 I've had to pull out of our <laughs> yeah. French Open and our um, Wimbledon and and our US Open
0: matches. Look, Matt, you can you can borrow my yacht. uh you know, play, my, play in my <laughs> Challenger tournament, take the yacht out for a spin. Oh,
1: gee, thanks, Rafa. Heal
0: up. That's amazing. i go to
1: Mallorca and um, play your tournament and buy your yacht, which is what Andy Murray did. He um, he lost to Mateo Viola in the third round of the Mallorca Challenger, also called the Rafael Nadal Open. <laughs> um, and while he was there, he was offered uh, use of Rafael's Personal yacht. What do you?
0: What um, is Rafa Nadal's yacht called?
2: Uh, <laughs> yeah, I really want to know. Actually,
0: I'm googling uh, it yeah, now. That's but a good question. It, what what could it guess? be called? The Seabull. The, sea yeah. the, the rowdy singlet. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I don't know if this information is public. But there is. A, I found a sweet picture of Rafa like like you know rocking out on his yacht like he's just standing on the bow with his arms outstretched it's too bad he's not like doing a beer bong that would that would be nice no i mean he's got he's got to watch his body you know um anyway we'll we'll do we'll dig into that later and you know we'll get back to you guys maybe we'll do do a special report on rafa's oh, not on rafa's yacht not his knot. he's um, been hanging with
1: tiger woods as well <laughs> tiger, tiger woods has been coming to his matches Mm. Um, he he could he could take Tiger Woods out on it, and then they could play some golf together. That would be extremely um, aristocratic.
0: Oh, it's called Beethoven. Yeah, <laughs> I wonder what that. <laughs> it's called Beethoven. You found it, Alex.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. I found it be- on the Business Insider. He named his yacht. <laughs> yeah. He named his his yacht Beethoven. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna have to process that one for take a little Beethoven while. Beethoven out for sale, if you like, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I maybe maybe Rafa sees himself as like the Beethoven of tennis, and you know, whereas you know, maybe maybe Rogers Rogers kind of like the Johann Sebastian Bach. You know, he's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit mathier, a little bit more cool, cerebral. I don't know who Novak is. Mm. Maybe Novak is Bach machine-like cold Mm. calculating who's mozart okay so let's give mozart to federer i'm not enough of a classical music nerd to know but but there's they probably should (laughs) (laughs) i'm shooting all over the place but they should they should all Uh, get matching (laughs) knots and uh yeah Uh, they should name their yachts after classical composers. And maybe they have a different yacht line for, you know, a different kind of situation. But I think it's a fair comparison. I think (laughs) think (laughs) 500 years from now, people are going to be watching these three guys, you know, recordings of their matches um, and uh, marveling (laughs) at how incredible it is that the three of them and just keep going head to head and they just win all of the tournaments Uh, and nobody you know there's maybe in the rest of our lives we'll never have a situation like this a rivalry like this let's switch to talking about the women a little bit because i think we've we've been Mm -hmm. kind of ignoring them and you know serena serena just she won her quarterfinal match against uh shang wang i don't know how to pronounce it do you guys know shang wang shang wang it's weird because that's how we say it in australia okay that's how they say yeah i mean shang wang i look I watch a lot of tennis and I don't know who she is. I feel like, and she was top 20. She's, you know, she's, uh, she's 27 years old or something like that. And anyway, Serena just absolutely murdered her, you know, like like painted the, the court with her blood. Uh, it was, uh, you know, like I turned on the coverage just to see how that match was going. It was going 44 it was already over. It was only yeah, 44 minutes. minutes. Yeah, they, they probably needed to get, like, a Legends match out there just to, like, you know, fill fill the time. I mean, it, it was over so quickly, and Serena's got that old dominant vibe, and it seems like nobody is going to stop her. And I think, I think actually, you know, it's so much of how we regard these players has to do with uh, the stories around them, and it's not just about the individual, and Serena never had anybody who was on her level during her career. Like she never had a true rival. I, the, the second most number of slams won during Serena's career is by her sister. And it was like seven. Um, so Serena huh. just totally dominated an entire era of tennis. And she may win another championship here uh, at the, uh, you know, this coming weekend. Um, and I feel like it kind of, you know, makes the story, like there's just less to talk about there, you know, like, ah, she, she destroyed somebody. Um you know, at least with Maria Sharapova, like, it, you know, there's this kind of like, there's this, there seems like there's this undercurrent that Serena just wants to humiliate uh, Maria Sharapova every chance she gets. But
2: yeah, it feels more like a business rivalry.
0: Yeah. You I, know what I mean, it's, it's just, yeah, I mean, it's not a true rivalry. Like, even though Maria's won a number of slams no. and was a great player in her own right, she just could never compete really head-to-head she's lost how many matches in a row 17 or something
1: we, we almost saw um, ash Barty play against her in this tournament if if she'd beaten chang wang in the fourth fourth round she would have played serena and then that looked like it was going to happen at wimbledon too but she lost to Alison risker right and um yeah but it, no one looks like touching serena williams she is yeah, I don't... I don't. so hot right now.
0: And uh, so she gets Alina Svitolina in the semis. And Svitolina playing is... playing great as well, actually. Yeah, she's playing great. She's got the gems life mojo going for her. She seems happy and uh, and ready to roll. And she's had some big wins. I mean, she beat Kanta. I guess that, that's been a one-sided matchup, but beat her in straights. I just don't know. Like, she can't hit it through Serena. And is she... You know, I, I don't see her with a real chance in that match. It, um, Andreescu is the player left who I think has a legitimate chance to beat Serena, but um, we'll see. She's she also has to get through uh, through a quarter and a semi, so um, there's a little ways to go for, for Bianca. Um, I had asked both. I would asked you guys if the over under on Bianca Andreescu's slam count was ten. And uh, and Matt said under, but Alex said over. So uh, Alex and I are aligned on this one. Like I think Bianca could well, be an all time yeah, great. Yeah,
1: I mean you guys had you guys had just seen her play I, play her fourth round match, and I didn't see that. Mm. Um, so maybe maybe that's fair enough. I just it just over ten slams would make her one of the greatest players of all time. That's right, like up there with Steffi Graf
0: and Serena Williams and Martina never had a life. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so So it's a big ask, for sure. And it also, who knows, like, you know, maybe Coco Goff becomes a greater player and maybe somebody else is in the... Maybe there's, you know, there's a bunch of players who are able to beat Bianca. And so the assumption... Ten Slams is basically saying, like, that, yes, she will be one of the greatest players of all time. And that is... I, I realize that it's totally premature to assume that about anybody you know I mean she's she's 19 years old I think but I I have this feeling with Bianca and I realize that this happens sometimes this has happened with male players too where I just I get excited about the potential you know like Shapovalov when he beat Rafa a couple years ago and I just think like what if this what if this player is actually one of the greats and we're just seeing the start of it um and I, one of you guys was Could pointing be. out that, that Bianca hasn't lost an actual full match since February or something, <laughs> Something like sounded something absurd yeah, like that. Yeah, that's right. How is that possible? She's
2: retired from a few. So I think she's going to be the raffer of this generation. So injury is going to stop her. Nothing but injury is going to stop Andrescu. <laughs> so, so she retired yeah, I mean, from, that's always a dimension. from a few tournaments, but every match and tournament she's finished – she's won since the late february or early march yeah up until now
0: <laughs> right and she's something like 6 and 0 or 7 and 0 against top 10 players so it's not like she's just finding a way she's getting lucky draws and beating scrubs like she's beating legit players you know she beat kerber in that indian wells final um which was amazing and then went out and beat her again the next week in miami um before retiring that's why she didn't win that tournament um, and then, of course, she got the win against Serena, but it was a retirement from Serena, which was really unfortunate because that was that was a juicy matchup I wanted to see, and hopefully we'll get it again in a few days. But still some matches to We will left if play. she
1: makes the final, and um, if Serena beats Vidalino, and if Bianca Andreescu gets past Elise Mertens in the quarterfinals. Who, incidentally, Mertens has made the double semifinal with oh. Sabalenka. So she's having a fantastic tournament.
0: Wow, the double—the double, the double um, is in play for Mertens. She could win singles and doubles. The
1: double, the double is in play for Mertens, um, and the other quarterfinal that we haven't talked about is Belinda Benchik, who took out Naomi Osaka mm. um, and Donna Vakic.
0: Yeah, um, Benchik yeah. has has had a bit of a revival. Uh, it, it's been pointed out by the commentators. Uh, she made a Quarter or a semi when she was a teenager here as well at the U.S. Open, and uh, yeah, it yeah. was just it was just injuries derailed her. Um, she had won Masters events. In fact, andrescu reminds me of her, um, but I never really personally. Well, they share an interesting Benchic. stat. What's that?
1: Um, that they're the only. Well, uh, that that Benchik is the most recent player before Andreescu to make her debut to make the quarterfinals on her debut of the U.S. Open.
0: Ah, okay. Because
1: Bianca's never played this tournament before um, and she's made the quarters and Benchik did that in her first tournament
0: too. Yeah. um, They kind of like, they have similar, I I think they kind of have a similar appearance, the two of them, Um, but uh, Andreescu's game is just so much more charged. She's just like the... She's just like the hopped up version. her, uh, you know, Alex has talked about her background her backhand quite a bit. Like she just absolutely rifles the ball. Like there's this acceleration that seems to happen to the ball when Andreescu hits it with like full intent uh, that's super impressive. And I also just think her game's more creative, and she's she's just got this she's got a, like a she's got an attitude. you know, she's really she's really a game competitor. Mm-hmm. and it feels like, uh, her matches just kind of naturally become dramatic. Like her her fourth round win against Taylor Townsend wasn't actually that straightforward. She dominated the two sets that she won, but she managed to, she kind of got a little nervous and dropped the second set. Um, but I guess it, it's still telling that really that match was in her hands the whole time. Like, like Taylor Townsend really didn't ever seem like she was in control. And I feel like that's the way it is with the greats, you know. Like we were talking about with Federer before, if he's on his game, it's just his match, you know, um, against everybody except those top guys.
2: Well, yeah, Townsend beat Halep with a really strong serve and volley game, and then everyone was like, "Oh wow, she's going to come out and play serve and volley. It's going to be amazing." She tried it for the first few games, and and Andreescu just totally made that irrelevant. She was just passing her left, right, left, and right, and it was just not working. And so it made it force Townsend to just re-evaluate and just completely change her game and stay at the baseline and just change everything and adapt to what Andreescu was 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 laying down. It was really, yeah, it was really interesting to watch. Andreescu just forced Townsend to change to change what she was doing. Mm.
1: Yeah, and it's and- great that Townsend um, plays that that style because it, it makes a more interesting match, but. Um, no match it didn't
0: work <laughs> yeah it almost seemed like she gave up too quickly like i mean so much of what i didn't watch any of taylor's earlier matches but it sounds like that was really a big key to her success she was just disarming people and then like simona halep just for whatever reason didn't d- failed to adapt in in that match and, and went out early but um, you know Bianca was saying like yeah and practice I was practicing my lobs it wasn't it wasn't lobs that Andreescu was using to to defang that tactic she was just hitting like wicked passing shots Taylor would come in and get past really good passes and yeah. you know um, you if you if you're able to pass like if you're able to hit your target and hit with enough pace it's like that's another way to beat the servant the servant volley Um and uh, so it was interesting. And then, yeah, Taylor, like, adjusted her strategy and was just went back to, like, baseline tennis and then managed to win the second set, which kind of suggested maybe that um, Bianca was a little thrown off. Like, she was expecting a certain kind of play and wasn't getting it. And uh, she had to then readjust her game. Um, so it's kind of fun to see that, that, that sort of thing happen on the fly and recognize yeah. it, I feel like like my my tennis nerd level just like went up a little bit you know cuz i can identify those tactics and like you know see players reacting to them and that sort of thing
2: her returns were so good in that first set it was either she was either passing it super hard and low down either side or she was just putting the return really short and at at Townsend's shoelaces, like before the service box. She was returning them and they were just dropping before the service box. So Townsend would come in to do a volley and she'd have to pick it up off the floor to try and get it over the net. And she was just putting it in the net every time. It was great. It was so, her return game was so good in that first set.
0: Yeah, I hope I can catch the uh, the Mertens uh, quarterfinal. Elise Mertens apparently has lost fewer games than anybody else in the tournament, I think on either side. Um, and hmm. she's in the doubles mix still. So that's uh, really impressive from her. But I just feel like Mertens is a, is one of these players. She reminds me almost of, like, uh, Gofan on the men's side. Like, she beats everybody she's supposed to. So she'll get, you know, she'll go on these runs sometimes. But at the end of the day, she just doesn't have the firepower to really mix it up uh, at the end of a slam. She's- and I feel like Andreescu should probably beat her pretty easily. But we'll see. She
1: hasn't played a seed, so far. Mm. She's played. She's she, yeah. She's had easy matches. Taikman, from Switzerland. Then Christina Pliskova, the less accomplished of the, the less, sisters. The lesser Pliskova. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Petkovic, who used to be good, <laughs> and <laughs> Petko, Peckers. Um, i was thinking she's... about
2: cinnamon and chocolate babkas now. What's that? Al? Mm. Uh, no, I'm just thinking about a Seinfeld reference Sin- the cinnamon and chocolate babka the cinnamon is the lesser babka <laughs> <laughs> <Doesn't
0: Right. matter. laughs> I love it breaking out the Seinfeld reference for the US open <laughs> 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 yep i mean they're they're identical twins so like how does that feel to be like to have the, the identical dna of another human being who's just much better at tennis than you yeah, yeah. um We'll get our team of psychologists on it. Pretty good though. Yeah, I mean it doesn't seem like either one of them really has much in terms of emotion, so I think you know everything's just perfectly neutral all the time. Maybe
1: (laughs) But what goes on inside their head? Like their heads they don't have the same head.
0: They don't. That's not (laughs) the way it works with twins. (laughs) Anyway, I'm sorry.
1: I don't know. But they do maybe have a psychic connection with each other. Do they feel the loss of their sister?
0: Yeah, maybe maybe Christina's pulling Carolina down. The cinnamon babka is, you know, just diminishes the chocolate babka. <laughs> I mean, they come from the same They're both very good flower, tennis players. The, the same... Both
1: very good, and they're making a lot of money out there. Yes.
0: One of them more so than and the other.
1: hopefully having fun, because that's
0: the main thing. Do you think they have a shared bank account? <laughs> <laughs> what what are their yachts called? That wouldn't called? cause any problems. <laughs> <laughs> Cinnamon and chocolate. Those are the yachts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally just going
2: to think about them as. That's going to be attached to the Pleskovich in my mind now for a while. I think.
0: Yeah. Stop it. Stop it. Same. We're gonna we're gonna actually. <laughs> no. I, I think we're gonna have a fleet of yachts by the time uh, our podcast has you know reached. Reached its third year. This this could be a, a thing we have to unpack. Yachts Fair <laughs> will,
1: will have the names. Yeah. Of, um, let's go to Coco Goff and um, the match with Naomi Osaka. Yeah. Because um, mm. that was billed as a really exciting match for obvious reasons. Coco Goff, um, you know, is so young and so likable and had won her first couple of matches. Um, but, yeah, she got... She got hammered by Osaka, didn't she?
0: Uh, yeah, that was a real doozy of a match. I think the match was more notable for its post-match interview than the actual tennis. Um, I don't know if you guys saw that. Mm. The tennis, there, re- there really wasn't anything yeah. to speak of. Uh, it was, it was hyped like no match ever has been hyped. It felt like you know. I mean, people are really fascinated with Coco Gauff, and it's you know, this is just. I, we've talked about it a little bit before. It just there's something that makes me a little uncomfortable. How much we get excited about a child prodigy, you know? And it, but but you know, it captures people's imagination. And in the U.S., people are a little bit tuned out to tennis. And this is like it's a pretty compelling storyline. And she's she is a kid, and she also she seems like she has a lot of fun out there, and her game is really fun to watch. So I'm totally on board, Team Coco. I've got my Coco T-shirt ready to go. Um, but she came out against the world number one um who's no longer in the tournament, but uh, Osaka just was having none of it. <laughs> she was she was like it's and it I think what was interesting to me was seeing Naomi Osaka, who's twenty one years old, which is also very young. Uh, in case you don't know how age works. Um, Naomi Osaka is also very young. And but Naomi, by compar- Naomi got to play the elder statesperson for the first time, and I it was really it was really interesting. And I'm curious what you guys think about that uh, that post match interview. Um, did you guys catch it?
1: I couldn't yes. actually see where they spoke to Mary Joe Fernandez together, but I saw where um, where Naomi came over um, to Coco and said, "Hey, let's do this interview together." The people are here for you too, and I think you know we should we should front the media together on court. um So that was lovely. It was a
0: beautiful Yeah, gesture. I thought it was r- yeah really graceful. Uh, yeah. What do you think, Alex? I,
2: I think it was. I don't know if Coco was super into it, but Naomi was coming from her angle was like she said she said like it's better to just get it out now and talk about it rather than going and crying in the shower. Uh, you know, these people are here for you. Do you want to come and do this interview? And Coco's like, oh, I'm not sure. I don't know. I'm just going to cry the whole way through. And Naomi's like, look, it's it's better to just do do this. And you know, and but uh, I mean, I don't know. And the whole time they actually talked to Coco, she was just properly crying, like couldn't breathe properly, and was you know, it was just felt like maybe she should have just gone back to the change room and had some time to herself I, I don't know it was it was a really nice gesture and I do see it from that angle I'm not trying to like put it down or anything but part of me is like uh, maybe Coco could have just left the court and I don't know I'm in two minds about it it was a nice gesture and I, I think it was coming from a really genuine nice supportive place from Naomi's part and that's really good
0: Yeah, yeah. it's it's one of those things where you could parse it a dozen different ways. Like, was Naomi Osaka being kind of self-serving? You know, like, you know, was it... I mean, like, I think if you assume the best in everybody, like, you realize Naomi Osaka is a complicated human being and everybody's constantly trying to understand what's going on in her mind. And it's like, you can't really know. And she showed a kind of maturity and grace that I thought was really touching. You know, she, she was trying to share the stage, which, you know, often doesn't happen. I think often people are quick to like grab the glory and, you know, Mm -hmm. they're thinking about themselves and not the other person. And I think Naomi really knows what it's like to have that kind of pressure on and to have like this big moment not go as planned. You know, I mean, her first US, her first Grand Slam championship was really marred by this whole, ridiculous sideshow with Serena Williams and the umpire and the crowd Um, and Naomi like couldn't enjoy this moment that was supposed to be like this you know this career accomplishment this you know she reached the top of the mountain and all of a sudden it just just wasn't what it seemed and I think you know Coco as a 15 year old has so little life experience you know so little perspective I can't imagine what it must feel like to have to be that young and have people asking you all these weird questions and wanting, you know, like projecting all this stuff onto you and asking you what you think about the future and what your goals are. And I mean, you know, what were we doing at 15? You know, I was, uh, I was stoned in a Dunkin' Donuts parking lot. I mean, that's, you know, uh, and I, and I, and I I ended up okay. I mean, I'm doing this. So no, totally. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, it's, I don't know. I, sports stories are like, it's interesting, you know, And I definitely think David turned out okay. Thanks Thanks for the vote of confidence.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I definitely think it came from a genuine place. And I think think there would have been a part of Naomi (laughs) probably would have felt awkward doing the interview without her because the crowd was so heavily there to see, well, Mm. behind Coco and, and on board with Coco's story. So I think she felt like it was only right that Coco koko like talk you know and and be part of that because because of all that but i yeah i just i can i'm just trying to i'm just imagining it from koko's perspective of coming out and here with all that hype around it on arthur ash in the night it was a nighttime match right it was like a big it was a big prime time show and then to get crushed in the match like that she would have been feeling a little bit Embarrassed, I think maybe, and her head probably maybe would have been reeling, and maybe she just wanted to get the hell out of there and just have some time to process what just happened and have a think about it. And and from from that perspective, I think maybe she felt—I don't don't know—I don't—I can't say what she felt, but I'm just projecting what what I think it may have been like. Yeah, it would have been
0: such a big deal. Yeah. It would've been crazy. I mean, right. I, I think you're onto it, though, Alex. I think it's, um, it. I I imagine that for Coco, that that gesture was really stabilizing and also just, you know, just like a reminder, like you're gonna have to confront garbage like this. <laughs> you're gonna have to confront everybody's expectations and these huge crowds and the ridiculous Tom Rinaldi on-court interviews. And, you know, and I think Naomi was kind of just, you know, she was, she was just showing some, some leadership, you know, just show like, like, hey, like, if you do this, you'll be better for it. And, you know, Coco doesn't seem like Mm. a 15 year old with a lot of fear. Um, And, uh, you know, but she was clearly hurt in that moment. And, uh, and, you know, maybe that, mm. that gesture will m- mean something to her down the road. Um, I don't think there's like a selfish element yeah. at all from Naomi. I think it was like pretty pure and, and pretty cool.
2: Yeah, true. Totally. Yeah, yeah no, definitely. Definitely, I think it was a good, pure th- gesture. Uh, yeah.
1: It was good. It was good. Like the, the other thing there is just that, you know, uh, the, win- the, the um, post match interview for the winner. Doesn't have to be that way. You can kind of go, like a did. Well, you know, let's just let's the let's the winner and loser be friends, and have a conversation at the end of it and enjoy the moment together. Because um, it was a, such a hyped match, and it's not necessarily only about who won it. It's also about people's interest in the match yep. for other reasons. Yeah,
2: I do like that that showing that that side of it and just. Just snapping the script a little bit there, which is I, I like that a lot. That was good.
1: But John McEnroe would have been happy with the result. He wanted um, Coco Goff to lose. Thought that she'd be too young to take out the world number one and the defending champion, and that tennis is just better if it has if if you have these champions that um, don't give up their throne so easily, and that you have to you have to get a bit of age, a bit of experience, and work hard to be able to topple a champion like Naomi and um she's come up with uh, Coco Goff's come up against Simona Harlop in at Wimbledon and now um Naomi Osaka at the US Open and has got um a useful lesson each time a useful tennis yeah, lesson yeah I mean which was gonna it's gonna help d- her out yeah
0: I think you know Mac and Rose also kind of suggesting like do we really want this story to just go straight to the ending? Like, do we want it to be like, oh, she's a grand slam champion now. Yeah. Now (laughs) like, well, she's going to win every grand slam from now on, Um, which, you know, at 15. 15, Yeah. Starting at 15, she's going to, she's going to win 70 of the next 72 grand slams. I mean, it doesn't seem to me like she (laughs) has, I mean, she, she's a pretty impressive player, but she doesn't have that kind of like physical edge that would make me think that she's just going to dominate the sport for generations, <laughs> like like the current men's crop, you know. Yeah. but, uh, yeah, I don't know. there's something like this is something I realize is new for me as a tennis fan, like watching the young players come up and be in getting invested in them, you know, whether or not it works out. Like feeling like Bianca Andreescu might if things go well, be one of the all-time greats and somebody I'm going to enjoy watching until I'm, like, 55 years old or something. Uh, That's a scary thought. But, um, you know, then you you just... There's a different kind of investment, right? Like, I came to Federer late in his career. I missed his first 14 slams or whatever. So my perspective on him is totally different. It's not like I watched him as a moody 19-year-old with the, the long hair and the headband, smashing rackets, you know, like suddenly figuring it out um you know i came to him from a very different perspective so anyway coco golf there will be more there will be more slams and you know there have been a lot of teenage prodigies who've come and gone and injuries happen and just kind of seems like in the women's game in particular there's there's players who have their moments and then just kind of you know there's been it's been hard for anybody to like maintain consistency you know um so it'll be interesting to see in the coming years if if one of these players like really takes the takes the wheel and kind of you know runs for a while as the as the champ. But like right now it's Naomi Naomi and Barty just keep switching number 1 in the world and it's kind of like whoever loses first in the tournament loses that position. It's kind of awkward actually. Yeah, it
1: looks like Ash Barty's going to be number 1 year end number 1 mm-hmm. now cuz she has less ranking points to defend for the rest of the year. And she's got um,
0: enough of a lead that really only Pliskova could catch her. Right. So our slam champions are Halep, Barty, and uh, who won the Aussie? I'm blanking on the women's side. S- somebody beat Kvitova. Um, Osaka. Osaka. Right. Yes. Yes. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Osaka. She won two in a row. So we're gonna have a, a fourth women's champ. Um, and uh, but yeah. On the men's side, it looks like it might be Rafa with two at the end. Surprise, surprise.
1: Or it could be Medvedev with his first
0: could slam. Could be. Lots to look forward to.
1: What do you guys yeah. like in fashion So, um, in the next little bit
0: of the Open that we've seen? I definitely don't like what uh, Grigor Dimitrov was wearing last night. What do you guys think about that?
2: Well, yeah, that's what I talked about in the last episode, the the rugby league style Nike jersey. I don't like it at all. With the V-neck, it's like
1: the, the V-neck, v. yeah, yeah, it's got that um, black, black, white, purple, and they have got the yellow trim on the Nike and on the sweatbands. It's um, it's very loud. What mm. I do like about it is the the pr- the print is kind of like it's got this messiness, like it's been kind of been painted on. I think that's cool.
2: Yeah, yeah, I noticed that too, but it kind of it looks a bit like someone's drooped something on there, which is <laughs> you know, I guess it's kind of okay with yeah. the on the other, on the other like stand a it like look like has someone's painted. like some snot or something fell on their shirt
0: or or a snot. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I think there's there's something to be said for wearing a really hideous outfit and then having like the greatest moment of your career. Um which, you know, might be happening to Dimitrov wearing this, <laughs> this purple and grey thing that I'm posting in our chat.
2: He always picks the loudest of the options. Every time there's, you know, with the Nike range, there's always like three probably options of shirts. And he always goes for the most loud, obnoxious one. Remember when there was last season, I don't know which part of the season it was, where they were doing the pink and Pink and black, and most people picked the, the diagonal line pink. One side was right. pink, and one side was black. But there was another version which was all pink with just a black stripe across it. And, and Dimitrov was like, mm, Yes, that's yeah. me. That was the one I'm going to go pink, pink, pink shirt, pink shorts, pink
0: shirt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe it's because his personality is like he's, he's. You know, he's a little bit plain. I mean, he's he seems like a very nice guy. That's, that's all I ever hear about him is that he's just like one of the most genuinely decent, you know, thoughtful, pleasant people on tour. Um, you know, which doesn't always differentiate you. So maybe, you know, he's picking some style choices within the little Nike allotted bubble um, that allow him to express a different part of his personality. And, you know, I'm into it.
2: Yeah, I'm into it.
0: Two players
1: that aren't um, in the Nike bubble are um, Dan Evans and Bublik. Um, what's Bublik's first name?
0: No idea. This is like a tri- uh, trivia question. Mikhail?
1: No, that's Kukushin.
2: That's Kukushin.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway, Bublik, <laughs> Bublik and Evans both wear... Alexander. They both wear uh, Yoksoi. Yeah. This is a new, um, this new clothing line, um, clothing company it's very good it's um it's it's mainly white but it's it's got some some little it's got some interesting shapes it's got like this kind of mandarin collar with buttons
0: oh Um, yeah yeah. right Um, i have seen nothing really like it i didn't see public play but public is public's got a, a style um you know i mean he's tattooed he's i remember at the newport tournament he was wearing these colored sleeves um and yeah there's some this this one kind of looks it's strange it's almost like a blouse i feel like because it has this this fold on the top the buttons and the, the little folded area i don't know
2: yeah i i think i think the tennis podcast guys were ripping into him Ripping into Dan Evans about looking like a <laughs> doctor or something,
0: <laughs>
2: but, uh, but I like it. I'm yeah, into Try it. to find a Dan
1: yeah.
0: Evans picture.
1: Oh, it's actually it's actually I've been saying. Oh, so so it's based. It comes from the the Japanese word mm. yoroi, um, but but because of the X factor that it, it incorporates scientific elements into the design, that yoroi <laughs> becomes yoksoi. It's the performing uh, sportswear for the warrior of the 21st century. We believe that passionate like it, huh? tennis players are modern-time okay. samurai.
0: All right, so there's a little bit of thought. Okay.
1: So that's why it's got these, like... Yeah, this, this fat like that blouse kind of mm. fabric, extra extra bits of fabric. Right. Like There's also, do you know what the, the term
0: have? is, mm. Matt, uh, since you have um, you're our resource for obscure fashion terms there for that button collar that goes straight up because I, Federer has worn those numerous <laughs> times and I've had a shirt like that and I kind of, I kind of dig, dig it. It's, it's sort of like an unnecessary buttoning. Um, like you wouldn't oh, yeah. really open it, but um, I mean, maybe like, you know, a uh, Benoit pair would open it, yeah. but Roger Federer, it's, it's going to be buttoned up. Um, so I, I just sent you guys a pic. Yeah, there's a term for it. Yeah, I don't I know like what that the term is,
1: but it's just like, I mean, it's like, you have like, like, yeah, it on What's a polo
0: that? shirt too. Sorry? Grandfather collar. Uh, I'm, I'm just looking if it's just grandfather
2: collar, but I think that's something else.
1: Go ahead, Matt. I think so. There's the round collar is a Mandarin collar. Um, which these shirts have, but the button up part, I mean,
0: Uh, we've we've entered into the the live fashion research segment of the podcast. I just sent you guys a picture, uh, in our group chat of, uh, Dan Evans standing with Roger Federer and Kobe Bryant. And, uh, it's pretty funny. Like Dan Evans just looks completely out of place. Like he looks like he's he's the caddy. You know, these these two sports legends are about to play a round of golf and Dan Evans is there to like carry their luggage, you know. Um, it was pretty funny. Like Kobe Bryant was was like doing some guest commentary uh, this week. You know, I feel like that's like a an, a classic ESPN move. They're like trying to get other sports people like into the mix to kind of make it, you know make tennis seem a little bit more hip and cool to the kids you know like hey basketball players like tennis sometimes and uh yeah you know, yeah and so you know i actually like i think that's yeah. a cool move to get some different voices in you know so it's not the same old you know folks who played tennis 40 years ago that nobody's ever heard of yapping away about it
1: i think we've also had um Other American – it's for so New York, like uh, I guess it really important for the celebrities this this tournament because people like um, Samuel L. Jackson and Vivica A. Fox and Ellen have been um, tweeting and commenting on the performances of of, um,
0: Serena Williams and Taylor Townsend. um, yeah I guess that's an aspect that's an aspect to the Sorry. us open I mean the crowd is very different in that way um and I don't like I don't know I, I guess for a lot of people that makes it seem more glamorous right like seeing seeing celebrities there um you know and but I, sometimes they just like show people like hanging out in the lower decks and it's just you, like, the the cost of really good seats on Arthur Ashe is astronomical these days. So, um, I don't know. It, like, it'll be thousands of dollars for, for How a much ticket are at the semis here? or finals. Yeah. Like, upper deck tickets are going to be... Like, the worst seats in Arthur Ashe will cost you $600 list. Which is pretty crazy. So...
2: Hmm. Wow. I
0: What's the Australian, Australian
2: Open final tickets like?
0: Yeah, I think it'll be like six hundred bucks or something. I think it's not like, so expensive. Like so the worst seats for the final in the US Open are like good seats for the Australian Open. That's kind of the that's kind of the, the balance there. Okay. So um mm-hmm. gotta keep keep our eyes out for that Australian Open on sale hmm. date. Get some get some tickets. Looking forward to it. Sydney also. I'm yeah. thinking I should come up for Sydney join you guys that'd be fun cool do see it. Alex his yeah, sure. Crown
2: yeah we're the official uh, Australian the official yeah o- Oceanic Swing podcast
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, we won't go to Brisbane though I will? don't know <laughs> mm, maybe not is <laughs>
2: Well, Actually, I could be. <laughs> I mean, I haven't. I the, be keen, to, to be to honest. Brisbane. And the ATP <laughs> Cup. Yeah,
0: that's the thing. We don't know what's going on with the ATP Cup. Like Perth lost the Hopman. I really, I want to go to Perth, and that seems like a great opportunity to go out there. But that event no longer exists. So, um, so we'll see. It's a little bit of a, a little bit more of a mm. trek. But then again, when you live in Australia, everything's a trek. So. Yeah, it's true.
2: It is really nice over there. Cool. There's some really nice
0: spots, Margaret uh-huh. River as well. Well, maybe we should wrap up. It's been it's been a good hour, um, and uh, I don't know I don't know how to say how to how to say goodbye on a podcast. Great, you know, like uh, I feel like you know we might we might actually have you know somewhere around ten listeners now total. I don't know if they're going to come back, but we're building our audience, so I feel like we owe it to we. This
2: is where we say come back. This is the, <laughs> we'll come back next episode, and we'll talk about <laughs> yeah, the right. end of the U- U.S. Oh weapon. yeah, I guess right. We would be and teasing the, the next, next thing, episode. The, hard, the indoor hard courts.
0: Um, yeah, we indoor hard courts. That's what we got to look forward to. Yeah, Shanghai. Um, that's a good time when you're in Australia. Like you can actually follow those events. In the U.S., they're like in the middle of the night. So yeah. Um, so that's right. All ten of our fans like come. You know, follow. Keep following us. Stay tuned. We're going to bring you some exciting. We we promise we'll we'll get better and smoother. Yeah, exactly.
1: And funnier. Yeah, I don't. And more knowledgeable and more interesting.
0: (laughs) I don't think the the last three, I don't think we need to do really much. You know, I think we're kind of there. Uh... Hey, um, to take us out,
1: let's hear from from Andre Rublev's um, uh, One Direction cover band from 2017.
2: Yeah, I, I lost it when I found this. I didn't find this. Ben Rothenberg, I think, wrote about it a couple of years ago, and for some reason it started getting mentioned again. I guess because Rublev's been going deep, and then he reposted the article, and he, there's a link to the YouTube in there. And oh wow, <laughs> I saw this. I lost it. It's so good. Yeah, play that, Matt, if you've got it.
1: He's had a great tournament, Rublev, and um,
2: love Rublev. By out, the way,
1: he yeah.
0: took out Curious. Yeah. The man, yeah. Maybe. How is um, so? that's here. Can you, can you, can you, <laughs> uh, yeah, like let's let's cut to it right now. Everybody
1: wants to steal my girl, everybody wants.